All right, so my name is Treasure. I'm with the Bertrand, maybe McLean group. <laughs> um, and so I will be reading the scripture this morning. It's in Mark 14, verses 40 through, 43 through 52. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the 12, suddenly arrived. With him was a mob with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had given them a signal. The one I kiss, he said, he's the one, arrest him and take him away under guard. So when he came, immediately, he went up to Jesus and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. They took hold of him and arrested him. One of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his ear. Jesus said to them, have you come out with swords and clubs as if I were a criminal to capture me? Every day I was among you teaching in the temple and you didn't arrest me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all deserted him and ran away. Now a certain young man wearing nothing but a linen cloth was following him. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God remains forever. Can y'all hear me fine? Okay. I grew up in a, in a, a black Baptist church on the south side, so if you talk loud, by no means are you offending me. I'm used to that. So good morning, everyone, as most of you probably know, but for those of you I have not had the joy of meeting, my name is Devontae McLean, and I'm a member of the Bertrand slash McLean slash Prado slash there's other people whose name I'm forgetting community group. I am the husband of Treasure McLean, the gorgeous Texas blue bonnet who just read our text for today. Interesting side note. The first time I ever called Treasure Gorgeous, she either said ill or she like didn't like, she didn't say it to me, she said it later. She's like, whenever you said that, it made me disgusted. <laughs> also, I am the father of Sanaa and Austin McLean, the two most energetic children I've ever seen in my life. More Sanaa than Austin. Okay, so, oh, before I dive in, I wanted to say, if you have not, you should give Tanner a hug, a handshake, an Amazon gift card, take this man out to dinner. Because I worked on this sermon and I was wiped. <laughs> so I don't know how he does this week in, week out. And I only have two children, he has four. So if you have not, give Tanner a hug and tell him, good job for not having a mental breakdown. <laughs> All right, so I have been excited to dive into God's word with you today. In fact, I was so excited, my original introduction was three pages long, just the introduction. So I was going to give you a summary of what we've learned so far in our journey through Mark, giving a parallel between our text and one of my favorite movies, Fast and the Furious Tokyo Drift, don't debate me, you're wrong. <laughs> However, because I love you, I decided to boil my intro down to this. Let's just dig into God's word. But one quick note before we dive into our Father's Word. One of the reasons it's important to study the entirety or the whole of Scripture, in this case specifically the Gospels because we're going through Mark, is because Scripture complements or clarifies itself. Scripture is self-interpreting. Philosopher Lydia McGrew talks about something called undesigned coincidences in the Bible. 
An undesigned coincidence is when one book or part of the Bible gives more details about a story that's mentioned in another part of the Bible. For example, Matthew tells us that at his trial before the high priest, some of the men began beating Jesus. And in the midst of this injustice, several of these men say to him, prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Well, why would these men randomly tell Jesus to prophesy about who hit him? While you don't find the answer in Matthew, Luke tells us that while some of the men were beating Jesus, they put a blindfold on him and started to say, prophesy, who is it that struck you? Luke expanded or clarified on part of what Matthew wrote. See, undesigned coincidences. I tell you this because during the sermon, I'm going to switch between the gospels while talking about Jesus being betrayed in the garden. And I may go from John said to Luke tells us, so I just wanted to explain the reasoning behind that decision so you're not confused. So I'll go ahead and pray and then we can dive in. Father, thank you for blessing us to be part of your body. Father, I pray that all of those who are absent today, which is a lot, that they would travel safely to where they're going. I pray that as we hear your word, there will be no reliance on my intelligence or beautiful words, but that I will be relying on the uh, power of the Holy Spirit because I cannot create faith in even my own heart. So I pray that you would give us the joy of obedience and that we would leave meditating on your word. Amen. Okay, so as a treasure, the gorgeous Texas Blue Bonnet said, <laughs> we're reading Mark 14, 43 through 52, and I'll just read verses 43 through 45. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one who I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. So last week, Tanner ended with Jesus, Peter, James, and John, also known as the inner, inner three, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I'll reestablish the context because I know we've all slept and or bought $50 per gas gasoline since last week. The Last Supper had just taken place. The 11 disciples sang a hymn with Jesus, 11 because Judas had left. Then they went off to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is a flattened, rounded ridge with four summits. A ridge is a long, narrow hilltop or mountaintop. And if you don't know, a summit is the highest point of a hill or mountain. Pardon me if I over-explain. I teach 12-year-olds and I get, wait, what did you say? About 13 times. So I just went ahead and put that in there. While they're at the Mount of Olives, Jesus tells the disciples they will all fall away and abandon him. Peter is the first to boldly proclaim, not on Jesus. The other disciples follow suit and say they will never abandon him. And after their confession of undying loyalty to Jesus, they go into something called the Kidron Valley. The Kidron Valley, if you don't know, a valley is a low area of land that's between either a hill or a mountain. So the Kidron Valley is east of Jerusalem, and it's between the walls of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. So they didn't travel very far. As they're in the Kildren, they enter the Garden of Gethsemane. So before I move on, let's reminisce for a moment. 
Remember in the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, God creates Adam and Eve, then he plants them, pun intended, in the Garden of Eden. Not much later, the serpent creeps into the situation and, dis- and deceives Eve into disobeying God. Then Eve also convinces her husband to disobey as well. God delivers judgment on the serpent, who we later find out in Scripture is the devil, when he says, I will put enmity, or hostility, between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, will bruise, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So in the Garden of Eden, the first Adam disobeyed God and brought condemnation or judgment on the entire human race because he is our representative, or he was. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, will obey God and bring eternal life to all those who believe in him. Romans 5 says it this way, For if many died through one man's trespass, talking about Adam, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. As they're in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus pulls Peter, James, and John aside to pray with him while the other eight stay behind. As Tanner showed us last week, they fall asleep three times, and now they're unprepared when the hour has arrived, the time for Jesus to be betrayed, because they're supposed to be praying. Keep this on your mind as we go through today's text. The first time Jesus returned from praying and found the disciples sleeping, he tells Peter to stay awake and pray. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So keep that part in your mind. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That will come back later and is very important. So with the the context being set, that brings us to our text today. The three disciples failed to stay alert and pray. Now Judas has arrived with the crowd to betray him. But why is it important to know that Judas betrayed Jesus? We wouldn't say that the people who showed up with Judas betrayed Jesus. You would just say they were criminals, really. Mark tells us the reason in verse 43. Judas was one of the twelve. The twelve disciples were a smaller part of the larger body of Jesus' followers because he did have more than just twelve. Those are just the ones we're usually familiar with. A disciple was someone committed to the teachings and lifestyle of another. So, the 12 disciples were 12 men. There were also women followers. They're just not included in the 12 disciples. They were 12 men committed to the teachings and lifestyle of Jesus. Judas had the blessing of seeing Jesus nearly every day, hearing his wisdom, and witnessing firsthand Jesus' gentle and tender heart in action. Yet, he still chose to betray Jesus anyway. Now, it would be easy for us to condemn Judas, and I'm not even saying that's wrong, because Scripture does say he was condemned. We might say to ourselves, You fool! (laughs) You were with him every day, God in the flesh, and you chose to betray him. Congratulations, you played yourself. But not so fast. We're with Jesus every day through the indwelling of the Spirit. We're able to communicate with members of Jesus' body every day. We're able to obey Jesus' commands every day. But is it not true that sometimes we, myself included, 
sin against Jesus, which is the same as betrayal. Judas did indeed make a foolish decision, but let's examine whether Scripture gives more detail on the motivation behind Judas's betrayal. And surprise, indeed, it does. There are two places where the Gospels talk about Satan entering Judas, Luke 22 and John 13. John 13 says, Then after he, Judas, sorry, I accidentally moved my laptop up. I'm used to having a piece of paper. Sorry, give me one second. There it goes. Then after he, Judas, had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do it quickly. So we see that Judas wasn't acting alone when he betrayed Jesus. There were spiritual forces at work in the betrayal of Jesus, namely Satan, who is also called Lucifer, who is also called the Prince of Lies, who is also called the Accuser of the Brethren, who is also described as one who walks about like a lion seeking whom he may devour. Cyril of Alexandria, a Christian who lived in the 400s, comments on this passage saying, Satan entered Judas, finding his heart ready and open like a gate to receive him, unprotected by a sober mind. And seeing that his mind was not locked against him, but rather already inflamed with a willingness to do whatsoever he might wish and suggest. So essentially Cyril is saying, Satan was able to enter Judas because Judas already had it on his mind to betray Jesus. Christians, therefore, before we quickly condemn Judas, again, I'm not even saying it is wrong to condemn him because scripture says he was condemned. But before you're too quick to condemn him, let us in faith perform a heart check. In faith, because our goal in this heart check isn't just to meditate on how horrible we are, which we can start to do pretty quickly because, you know, we make bad decisions. We are the bride and body of Christ. The purpose of this heart check is to prevent any hypocrisy. Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus, but are we, uh, but are we holding forgiveness toward anyone? Jesus said if we don't forgive others, our fathers won't forgive us. Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus, but are we verbally abusive? Paul said, those who are verbally abusive won't enter the kingdom of God. Yes, Judas betrayed Jesus, but do you entertain gossip? Paul says, you're backbiting the body of Christ and you will destroy one another. Again, the purpose of these questions isn't to make you feel ungodly guilt or beat yourselves up. That doesn't honor Christ. You are the bride of Christ purchased with his precious blood. The purpose of the questions is just to say, hey, before we're too quick to condemn Judas, let's be mindful that our heart isn't fertile ground for the enemy. We see Mark tell us Judas came with a crowd of people who carried swords and clubs. Mark specifies these people came from the chief priests, scribes, and elders. Think about our journey in Mark. Why is it significant that the people who came with Judas in the garden came from the chief priests, scribes, and elders? I can give you two reasons. First, these are the same group of people who've had conflict with Jesus in the entire book of Mark. They were upset about Jesus healing on the Sabbath. They were upset Jesus claimed the authority to forgive sins. They were upset Jesus followed his, allowed his disciples to eat grain on the Sabbath. They were upset Jesus didn't tell his disciples to keep some of the Jewish traditions and so on. 
The beginning of Mark chapter 14 tells us that the chief priests and the scribes were looking for a way to arrest Jesus by stealth or in privacy. Well, they found their opportunity in Judas. Another significant point about this group of people lies behind the Greek word cohort. I say cohort instead of crowd, the verse you see in the word you see in verse 43, because in the Gospel of John, when uh, telling us his story, he says cohort instead of crowd. The Greek word John uses for cohort is spira, like spiral, which means anything wound up or coiled, the tenth part of a legion, a military guard. And hopefully I didn't lose you just because I said, said one-tenth, because some of y'all probably don't like math. So I've met almost all of you, and I don't recall anyone saying they just have a burning desire to read ancient Roman history. Raise your hand. This is an actual raise your hand, not rhetorical. Again, I grew, I grew up in a black Baptist church. Raise your hand if you're familiar with the Roman legion. Okay, several people. Y'all are probably homeschooled. A legion was a unit of men in the Roman army. We're uncertain about the exact number, but it was somewhere between four to 6,000 men. So if a spira cohort was one-tenth of a legion, and a legion was between 4,000 to 6,000 soldiers, that means somewhere between 400 to 600 people showed up in the Garden of Gethsemane to arrest Jesus. Imagine it for a second. You're one of the 12, specifically Peter, James, and John. You're sleepy, and we don't make good decisions when we're sleepy. Jesus has prompted you to keep praying, but you are unsuccessful. Then he wakes you up, and some 400 to 600 men are walking toward you, who are Roman soldiers, who you have grown up knowing they're occupying your city and know exactly how rough they can be. How do you think the disciples felt? Or how would you feel? I folded in obeying Jesus, and there was only me, my friend Gage, and Starbucks. There was not 400 to 600 men. These soldiers came after Jesus like he was Tupac on the song Untouchable. And I'm going to still say it anyway, even though I don't even know if you know the lyrics. There's a song called Untouchable where Tupac is talking about he likes to fight, and he says, am I wrong because I want to get it on till I die? Like he's going to keep going till he dies. They came after Jesus like he was just ready to fight everybody. If you never heard it, don't go listen to it. It's not Christ on earth. Right. Mark goes on to tell us the betrayer, Judas, gave them, the chief priests, elders, and scribes, a sign to let them know who Jesus was when the time came to capture them. And the sign was a kiss, which honestly caught me off guard. But why that? So listen to the New Testament scholar Craig Keener. A light kiss on the lips, on the lips, not on the cheek, <laughs> was a sign of special affection among family members and close friends. Teachers could kiss disciples as a special sign of favor or of approval, and disciples could kiss teachers to show honor for them. Thus, Judas's kiss is a special kind of hypocrisy. Judas's intent with kissing Jesus was to put him at ease, to get Jesus to let his guard down, to make it seem like everything was normal. The equivalent would be as if you came up to me with a Barnes & Noble gift card and then socked me in my face. 
You, you put me at ease with the gift card, but then you hit me with the haymaker. That was pretty much what Judas was doing. John's gospel tells us Judas came with the cohort carrying torches and lanterns, which makes sense. I mean, it's dark, and it would be easy to confuse Jesus for someone else. But listen to John Chrysostom, whose name actually means golden mouth. So if you're looking for a name for your child. But wherefore does he say this? Talking about the cohort coming with torches and lanterns. Because often when seized by them, Jesus had gone throughout their midst without their knowing it. Nevertheless, then also would he have done if it had not been his own will that he be taken. What do we see in the Gospels? Instances where Jesus says or does something that upsets people. They rage against him, but he walks away untouched. In Luke 4, we find Jesus at a synagogue, which is a place where uh, Jews would uh, teach the Old Testament scriptures. In Nazareth, reading from, a, from a, a scroll of Isaiah, Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, which has a prophecy about the Messiah. After reading the scripture, Jesus says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Not much later, Jesus says a couple things that upset this crowd, and then Luke tells us, They rose up and drove him out of the town, and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built, so that they could throw him down from the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. The crowd was angry with Jesus, and it seems they even wanted to kill him, but what was Jesus' father's plan? For him to die for the sins of the world and rise from the grave three days later, so no such death on the brow of a cliff took place, though the crowd was determined. What comfort and joy can this bring us? What does this scene reveal about our beloved Jesus? Jesus was sovereign or in control of every single situation he was ever in, even when one of his 12 disciples came to betray him. As Chrysostom said, if it were not Jesus' will, he would not have been taken away. He would have just walked right through them as he had done before. Jesus was never caught by surprise or off guard. Regardless of the schemes of the world, no matter how elaborate, if their plan isn't in our Father's schedule, it is not going to happen. So you can rest easy. Our Father is prepared, and you don't have to stay up all night stressing. Or is that just me? <laughs> Which brings us to Mark 14, 46 through 47. And I should have just put the verses in my, in my notes. Okay. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. So the Gospel of Luke tells us that when the disciples saw what was happening, Judas betraying Jesus with a kiss, these 400 to 600 men arriving, they asked him, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Emotions are high. The disciples are afraid. They didn't keep watch and pray like Jesus said. So they're about to fold to the temptation to abandon him because though their spirit was willing, they promised not to abandon him, but their flesh is weak. Peter doesn't know quite what to do, so he cuts off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant. We know it's Peter who cut off Malchus's ear because John tells us in his gospel 
undesigned coincidences. While we can empathize with Peter, because we honestly would have tried something else probably, we must understand that though he had good intentions to protect Jesus, who he loved, he was falling back into the same pattern of setting his mind on the things of man rather than the things of God, just like Jesus tells him in Matthew 16. We must be careful about feeling like we need to protect Jesus through our own means because we might actually find ourselves striving against God. For example, in the Old Testament, God commanded the Israelite king, Saul, to slaughter a group of people. If you don't know what slaughter means, it means destroy. Even the animals. However, Saul thought it would be a good idea to spare the Amalekite king and some valuable livestock, both of whom he was actually commanded to kill. Saul probably thought he was doing a good thing, except God didn't tell him to save the king and valuable animals. He said, kill everyone. In a similar way, when Jesus told the disciples he would suffer, be killed, and raise on the third day, Peter responded, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And Peter's response sounds compassionate. He doesn't want Jesus to die. Except Jesus did not say, Peter, thank you for confessing your love to me. Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not set in your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter didn't want Jesus to experience any harm. But if Jesus didn't suffer and die on, and raise on the third day, like he said, not only would he be a false prophet, lying about God, who he said would raise him from the dead, but God's eternal plan would have been compromised because God said he would raise Jesus from the dead. Our Father doesn't need us to be crafty or creative with his plan. That actually honestly messes it up, so you should stop. He has called us to faith and obedience. Now, back to our text. Come witness the graciousness and long-suffering of Jesus even toward his enemies. What does Jesus say to Peter after he cut off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant? Remember, Malchus was part of the mob that was sent to capture Jesus. Does he say, way to go, Pete. Show them we're not cowards. They came in here acting tough and got their ear cut off. Son of David, don't raise no cowards. No, that's actually not what he said. Luke tells us that Jesus said to Peter, no more of this. Then he touched Malchus's ear and healed him. But left to our own devices, I would have thought Peter actually did the right thing. Do you see Jesus' kindness toward even his enemies? Now what do you imagine his kindness and long-suffering toward you? Who are not his enemy, but his bride, the same body he purchased with his blood. The one, when speaking to his father... He says about us, though we didn't exist yet, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you love me before the foundation of the world. Jesus yearns for us to be with him and see his glory because he loves us. Christian, you are not capable of exhausting Jesus' grace and kindness toward you. And if you have the mindset of when you mess up, you're just, oh, I know that was the one that set Jesus off. Jesus does not portray himself like that in the Bible. That's coming from your thoughts. In fact, 
Jesus receives more joy in helping us when we struggle than the joy we receive from being helped. That's the reason he came to help us. Let that soften your heart if it's hardened by sin. Let that comfort your heart if you're convinced Jesus is always on the verge of being mad with you. Let that increase your joy. Jesus will not bring himself to deny us this help. The only condition is that we come to him, and he gives us the strength to do even that. Mark 14, 48 through 50. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. So if you only read Mark's account of Peter cutting off Malchus's ear, Jesus immediately questions the crowd about coming against him like a robber. But if you read the other Gospels, they give you more details, undesigned coincidences. Matthew tells us that after Peter cut off Malchus's ear, Jesus tells Peter, <clears throat> Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? And if you read in the Old Testament, literally one angel killed 186,000 people. So 12 legions, I don't know what kind of destruction they would do. But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? What do these words reveal about Jesus? He is more committed to his father's word, the scriptures, than his temporary comfort. I won't pretend like I don't enjoy comfort. I do, a lot. But we must be careful not to let comfort become an idol. With these words, Jesus is calling Peter to remember that you will reap what you sow. But on a practical level, Jesus is also reminding Peter, hey, if you kill this guy, Malchus, the Romans will view this as a rebellion and kill you. So with telling Peter to put away his sword, Jesus gave Peter wisdom and saved his life. Furthermore, as Tanner once told me, in just a few hours, Jesus would save Peter's soul. All right, going back to Mark, Jesus asked the 400 to 600 men a pointed question. Why are you coming after me like I'm a robber? I taught in the temple in broad daylight. If I was doing something wrong or illegal, why not arrest me then? Though we don't hear a response from those men, Mark actually told us the answer at the beginning of chapter 14 of why they didn't try to arrest him in the temple. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him, for they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. On, the level, on one level, the chief priests, scribes, and elders arrested Jesus at night because they were trying to avoid a riot among the people. And in the words of a secular artist I once enjoyed, whose name I won't give you because it's not Christ honoring, they're going to start a riot, they're going to start a riot. But Luke tells us another reason why the chief priests, scribes, and elders waited until that night in the garden to arrest Jesus, undesigned coincidences. Luke twenty-two fifty-three tells us, 
When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour in the power of darkness. The Greek word for power here is ex exousia, and if I'm wrong, Tanner can correct me because he went to seminary and I'm just an everyday layman, which means authority or power. Our Father ordained a time or designed a time, Jesus called it the hour, for his betrayal to take place. He says, during this hour, the darkness has authority. We must remember this authority held by the darkness is borrowed, meaning the darkness has no authority on its own. Our Father ordained this time, and it must come to pass. That's what Jesus meant by the scriptures being fulfilled. Verse 50 says, they all fled and left him, talking about the 11 disciples. This goes back to last week. When praying in the garden, Jesus tells the disciples to pray lest they fall into temptation because though their spirit was willing, they were promising they wouldn't abandon him. Their flesh was weak. Call back to mind, I told you to tuck away that statement at the beginning of the sermon. Pray lest you fall into temptation for the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak. Last week we saw Jesus tell the 11 disciples Judas had left that they would all fall away by abandoning him. When Jesus tells Peter his spirit is willing, but his flesh is weak, he's talking about when Peter boldly proclaimed he would never leave Jesus, but was then unable to stay awake for an hour and pray with him, which is why when the time came, they all folded. Folded means they abandoned him. That's the urban translation. They abandoned him because they did not pray like he said. They weren't ready. They didn't pray because Mark tells us they were tired. And to be honest, that seems kind of reasonable. They were tired, but uh, Jesus told them to pray anyway. But tiredness aside, sometimes for us, speaking for myself, prayer seems like it's just an option among many. Prayer seems like an inconvenience. A quick stop on our way to what we truly enjoy. So let me pray and get this out of the way so I can go do what I've really been wanting to do so God isn't mad at me. Brethren, if we're honest, we, myself included, who loves theology, if you want to buy me a theology book, by all means, enjoy your books about the Bible, enjoying watching scholarly debates, loving reading books about church history from Amazon, even with all that about myself, I still face the temptation to view the call to prayer as sometimes annoying and just another task rather than intimate fellowship with our Father who has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the Son whom, we, whom he loves. But God, God does not leave us in this apathy toward fellowship with him in prayer. He has developed ways for us to conquer this apathy, this desiring other things more than prayer. If you are in that uh, state of not really wanting to pray or not seeing the relevance of prayer or honestly thinking it's, it's boring, reach out to someone in the body if you need help praying. Jesus has not left us alone to figure it out for ourselves. Jesus tells his disciples in John 15, he makes an analogy or a comparison. He says, you're like a branch and I'm the vine. The branch receives its nourishment from the vine. Apart from the vine, the branch will wither or die. It has no nourishment. In the same way, without Jesus, without nourishment and prayer, 
Your spiritual life will wither away and die no matter how many Christian books you read, no matter how many Bible studies you go to, no matter how many cuss words you avoid. Your spiritual life will die or you'll just fake it. And you'll be faking in the midst of death anyway. So let's press on together in prayer so we don't give in to that temptation to not pray. Last two verses, which are honestly the most difficult verses. And a young man followed him, this is verse 51 and 52, with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth behind and ran away naked. In this last section of our time together, I wanted to proclaim the gospel to you, the the gospel that's described as the power of God to save rebellious sinners. As this young man's linen cloth was ripped away in Gethsemane and his nakedness exposed, so it was in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve's nakedness was exposed as they deserted the God who loved them after he so graciously showered them with good gifts. God told them, hey, I got one rule. Don't eat from that tree over there. Because when you do, you'll die. They didn't physically die in that moment, but they spiritually died. They went from being in fellowship with God to being his enemies. I don't know if you grew up being a rabble rouser and you like to fight. The fight with God is one that is a guaranteed L. (laughs) However, the good news for Adam and Eve was that God did not leave them in their nakedness. He clothed them with the skin of an animal. Many generations, God didn't leave us in our spiritual nakedness either, but sent his only son, God the Son, to become human and live the righteous life we were all called to live. Jesus never, like ever, like even when people were rude to him and tried to prompt him to do it, he never broke any of God's laws. He fulfilled them all. This God-man, Jesus Christ, suffered the ridicule of the religious leaders, the chief priests, the scribes and the elders, and even his family, Mark tells you, from our text today. They hired one of his own followers, Judas, to betray him into their hands. He would later stand before the leaders of the Roman government where he was condemned as being a revolutionary or rebel against the Roman government which is interesting because one day they'll stand in judgment before him. However, the real reason he was confronted, I'm sorry, the real reason he was uh, sentenced to die was not because he was a revolutionary or a rebel, he actually wasn't. It was because the Jews were upset that Jesus would confront them in their sin, so they wanted to craft a way to murder him. But they failed to take into account that Jesus' suffering and death was God's plan all along. They were playing right into his plan. Jesus was crucified under Pontius Pilate, laid in a tomb for three days, but early on the third day he rose from the grave, having defeated death and hell, securing salvation for all those who trust in him, and he will come again and take back with him all those who have trusted in him. As John Piper says, there is no better news. If you know this God, man, if you know Jesus Christ, rejoice, for you have found the fountain of living waters. If you don't know this God, man, if you are still stuck in enjoying your sin, Jesus says all who will come to him will be saved. No one who comes to Jesus in repentance, feeling a sorrow from their sin, asking to be forgiven, 
Will Jesus turn away and say, ah, I don't feel like it today. You go join, enjoy your sin some more. Jesus will accept all who come to him. So if you don't know him, cry out to him and he will save you. And if you do know him, amen. You don't face his condemnation anymore. So that ends our time together. Father, thank you for uh, giving me the desire to want to study your word. Thank you for Tanner trusting me to not teach heresy. Father, I pray that this word would be imprinted on our mind and you would help us to live obedient and joyous lives.